You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Hello, welcome to Notes from Norwich. This is episode number 21. I am Chris and I'm here with Marguerite and Jan. How are you two doing? Pretty good. As well as can be expected. <laughs> that's, that's 2020 in a nutshell, right? Like even, yep. <laughs> even a good day is good for 2020 standards. Yeah, and we're recording this on the Monday before Election Day in the States, so. Yes. Well. So I don't don't know if it qualifies as a good day even, but God is good, and we're still here. Yeah. In the grand scheme of things, this will all fade away, pass away. Yeah. So a long, long time ago, (laughs) (laughs) a long, long time ago, a woman wrote some stuff about prayer. And let's talk about that instead of 2020. So this is chapter 43, chapter 44. Uh, That's our plan, at least. We'll see how far we get uh, of uh, Dame Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love, which hopefully if that if you're listening to this, you know that that's what this podcast is about. But maybe not. Maybe you're a new listener and you're dropping right into this. Um, so what we do is we, um, kind of go chapter by chapter through Julian of Norwich's revelations of divine love. And, um, that's what we're doing today. Chapter 43. And if you're new, I highly recommend going back to the beginning because it makes more sense running all the way through, I think. But I mean, you're welcome to join in whenever you want, but (laughs) It's funny yeah, I, because I was just about to say that you can start anywhere in this, <laughs> in this book and still get something. She does refer to earlier earlier um, showings, earlier revelation pieces of her pieces of her revelation, but it's you can start. You certainly can start at chapter forty three. I don't know about Marguerite. Marguerite is is wise and correct. Um, <laughs> I <laughs> I'm the kind of person who, if I start watching a TV show, even if it's like still going, I'll go back to the beginning and watch. So I'm a uh, fastidious about starting at the beginning. But you're right that she connects chapters to each other, but each one is sort of can stand on its own. Marguerite, so, listen to Marguerite, remember. not me. We remember a day when TV shows would just come out once a week and you couldn't just go back and stream old episodes. So yeah, we remember those days. So uh, if you're a new listener, uh, let us know, hit me up on Twitter if you want to, and let us know whether you are following Jan's recommendation of starting from the beginning or Marguerite's recommendation of just starting where you are. Either way, may God bless your, uh, reading and your study. Where shall we begin with chapter 43? Prayer wants the soul to God. That's how the chapter begins. Right. For though the soul is ever like God in nature and essence, restored by grace, it is often unlike God in its eternal state by sin on man's part. Now, this business that she talks about, about prayer wanting the soul to God is it sounds simple 
and it sounds it sounds understandable, but it's so much bigger than it sounds at first. And it's the reason why it's so natural is because we are created by God. And so naturally, when we are walking around in our lives and look to God and think of God and pray to God, it's, it is our nature to do that because of our having been created by God. And that's, that's Julian's kind of position on prayer and creation and how everything works in, in the whole universe. But she goes on farther in this chapter about the experience of being one with God. And she, she kind of downplays it. I think Um, she, she's talking about a mystical experience, but she doesn't sound like anybody else who's ever talked about a mystical experience, at least not to me. She sounds, she downplays it. She, she under, she under voices it. And it's, it's quite amazing. It's, it's just quite amazing. But this business of wanting the soul to God is all about, it's all about our setting aside ourselves and what we think we want and just giving ourselves to God. So the process for this is what we're going to be talking about today. She talks about it. That she uses this word witness that I find fascinating. Uh, then prayer, then is prayer a witness that the soul wills as God wills, and it comforts the conscience and inclines man to grace. Um, and this, I think, I think is going back to like her idea that prayer comes from God. Um, in that here, like here, the fact that we're praying is a testament to God shaping our, our souls, that the fact we are praying um, testifies to us being made as like to God in character as we are in nature, as she says elsewhere. Um, and that that's the source of comfort, that, that we can, that, that, that alone, the fact that we're praying is something to hold on to as as a sign of god at work in us um and as i as i like engage with the spiritual life um i often find myself hungry for some sort of indicator of how i'm doing um i sort of an indicator of my spiritual health um and that's connected to a whole complex of things about wanting to control and measure and everything that um, there's a lot of problems with it. But the idea that that just praying even is a witness to God's work is powerful for me. I've just been reading, I uh, just finished yesterday, um, reading um, Teresa of Avila's Interior Castle, because I always have three or four books going at once. Um, and so she says that there are, th- uh, you know, the Interior Castle is her 
concept of of these sort of seven stages. They're not stages, but they're seven um, dwelling places that one moves through somehow on the way towards union with God. And that the, the way to pass through each of the doorways to go from one to the other consists of three things. Each doorway is, is three things. It is prayer and humility and experiential self-knowledge. And these three things work together um, to bring one progressively closer and closer to God. Not that there's any distance between us and God in the first place, which is a big point of hers, but there's this perception, this um, transformation, this molding that needs to occur within the soul to set aside the barriers and to um, prepare us for union with God. Because for Teresa, she makes a big deal uh, about how we need to be prepared um, for um, true union with God, which leads me to this question for the two of you. When Julian says prayer ones the soul to God, do you think she means that prayer is a progressive movement towards union with God? Or do you think the minute one sits down to pray, one is unioned with God at that point? And it's like, like a light switch. Or is it like a like the growth of a plant. Well, I don't think it's steady. I don't think it's something that that you can map as progress with steps, you know, step one, step two, and step three or whatever. Um, I don't think it's a switch on, switch off thing either. I think it's more of a wave where anytime you feel that you, you feel like praying or even think that maybe you should pray that, that desire comes from God. And so you sit down to pray or you stand up, or you take a walk or whatever you do. And then you start praying. And then because you have answered God's call, you are, at one with God, however, you might not feel the full impact of it every single time. You may feel it once in your life. You may never feel it. You may think you never felt it, but you have felt it. I mean, anything is possible because this is God. We can't really diagram Um our spiritual life with God. This is my opinion personally. So so it's it's tough because like this language of oneing, elsewhere she talks about how we are always one to God. Um so there is in in her thinking in the revelations this idea that we're always one that there's that there is some way in which the oneing is an un, unchanging state and here as she talks about prayer 
there's clearly development, um, whether it's switch or gradual or wave, there, there's development. And so I, I think the question, like, is that, is that development a process of being one? Like, are we, are we already one? And there is, and this process is like becoming aware of it or kind of consenting to it. Um, or, or is this actually affecting the wanting? Um, is there a difference between consenting to it, cooperating with it, and affecting it? I don't know. I just answered your question with a question, um, which I realized is not very helpful. But I can tell that you're in seminary. So, <laughs> um, so Teresa of Avila, St. Augustine, uh, numerous others, uh, Pseudo-Dionysius, um, just pulling people off the top of my head who I know refer to this. For all of them, there is a discovery that uh, that we are primarily what we're doing in, in the development of the spiritual life is discovering what already exists. We're not creating anything or causing God to suddenly start appearing to us and loving us and, and uh, holding us in uh, life. All of that's already true. Um, but we have, you know, as Augustine says, you know, I was looking for you all over the place and finally found you. I was outside and you were already within me and I just needed to look in the right place, which is, you know, within. Um, and I think that that seems to be a common enough theme throughout all both mystical writers and contemplative writers um, that. I think that's what Julian is, or I'm assuming that's, that's a theme in Julian's writings as well, that God already holds us and that God is drawing us. Um, and nothing, nothing new is happening except for the change in our perception. But that change in our perception is everything because um, in order for us to love, we have to, freely offer our love and we can't freely offer our love unless we know to whom we are extending it. So we're not, nothing new is being generated except everything, you know, except our willing, um, the, the willing change of our subjecthood. The fact that, um, that although God loves me, I have not yet started to love God in return because I, I don't, I don't know God. And through prayer, I begin to get this sense of, um, you know, I'm getting these kind of love letters slipped under the door and I'm curious about who's writing these love letters. And so I start doing whatever investigation I need to do in order to find out who's 
sending me these love letters. And eventually, um, my curiosity combined with that action from God leads me to this place of discovery to the point where eventually I can give freely uh, what I was always meant to give. That's my theory. That makes sense. Um, and that maybe lines up with the way she opens this chapter with like, we are always like God in nature and essence, but then there's this external state that needs to change. Um, so there's, there's both a, a, a simultaneous as the work is being done in us. And I think that, um, That is important in thinking about process. That that insofar as this is a process, it's not a process on God's end. Um, nothing's changing with God. Um, it's it's what it's the changes are happening in us, um, and it, that may. That might be how it like holds together this this idea of eternally being one and being one, becoming one. So that from the God frame, we're always already one. Um, from our frame, there's growth that has to happen. And we and like we've we've encountered the the difference in frame in Julian before, with the 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 issue of kind of divine providence, um, and free will that there's from from God's frame, God is doing all, everything is from God, and from our frame we cooperate or don't cooperate or make choices. Um, and so maybe that's the, the wanting is operating in both frames. And here she's talking about what it looks like in our frame of reference. Right. You look pensive, Chris. Well, it ties in, I think, with... Uh, so this is midway through chapter... No. It's midway through reading 89. So like a quarter of the way through chapter 43. And for the fact that we pray to him mightily to do everything that pleases him, as if he said, How couldst thou please me more than to pray to me mightily, wisely, and willingly? to do the thing that I am going to do. So God's going to do it one way or the other. So in terms of the, the pattern, the changing, the shaping of reality, we have absolutely no impact on it. 
God's going to do what God's going to do. And there's nothing that I can do through my prayer that changes that. Um, anything that I would want would either be the good thing that God is already going to do, or it would be an incorrect request that I would make that God isn't going to do that would be based on my own lack of full awareness. I would be praying for something that isn't what is the best because God is going to do the best. So, um, but it pleases God to have me and everyone um, insofar as we're able to do it to, to agree with that. Uh, Which means I think it's just a different way of saying that God isn't the one changing, but it matters very much that I am the one changing. My soul is already one to God, but from my perspective, I am in the process of wanting my soul to God. That from God's perspective, the bridge is already built. From my perspective, I'm still, maybe at this point, I'm still just surveying the bridge and I haven't even begun to lay the first brick. I don't know. I don't know how much of the bridge I built from my side. Yeah. So we're coming to agree with God. That's the. Right. And thus the soul by prayer comes to agree with God. And I agree that it is a matter of will. It is a matter of our will being given over to God's will. I mean, we say this every day, that I will be done. And that is, that is a big statement. I mean, whether you're five years old and just learning the Lord's Prayer and kneeling next to your bed, or if you're 105 years old and on your deathbed, it's still, it's, it's a big prayer to say thy will be done. But and it's not as if it's not as if we can convince God otherwise, or if we can be rebellious and lure God into wanting something else. God's will is always going to, but the God's will is always going to prevail. But the thing, it, when you are, when you have surrendered your will to God. That is when that is when you are most open. That is when you are most one with God. And then your prayer is always is always what God wants. It is always it's always God's will. And this is not something that people want to hear when they ask about praying. They want to hear what they want to hear something else because this is just too easy or it's too plain or too simple. Well, of course it isn't easy, but it's just like a one step process. And people like to complicate things. I mean, it's very well, it's hard pretty big to step. want just what God wants. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's a, it's a pretty, it's a one step process, but it's a very big step. Don't you think? Yeah, I do. 
And I think you have to take that step constantly. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it never stops being the step that you take. Why do you think people don't see that? Or do they see it and they don't will it? And I include myself in this because, um, you know, I've been a professional religious person for a while now, and I still feel as though my prayer life is pretty weak some days. Oh, everybody's prayer life is weak some days. I mean, my goodness, I would hope it would be. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want us all to be spiritual masters, Marguerite? No. Okay. Imagine what the world would be like if we were all enlightened. We'd be insufferable. Uh, it would be the kingdom of God. Yeah, I think that's what Revelation is describing. Mm. What we've been reading in the daily office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But that's it's that that's the unmediated sight of God. Like and this, so she talks about, like, actually right after this, about this particular grace of um, more or less unmediated contemplation of God. Um, that there's a particular grace by which God shows himself to our soul and we have what we desire. Um, and she talks more about how it's unmediated later. Um, but it, it, that's the, that's the foretaste of the, of the eschatological prayer that it's like, I, I see her talking about God gives us sometimes, sometimes gives us, um, Jan has frozen. Oh, okay. Well. Mar- marvelously rejoicing with reverent fear and such sweetness and delight in him that for the time being, we can pray absolutely nothing except as he moves us. It's like, so that's, that's what I think, like, we've been, we've been reading Revelation in the daily office and yesterday was All Saints Day and we get that that picture of the heavenly throne room. Um, and that, that's a, this is a taste. She's talking about getting tastes of that. Um, and I think if we were all spiritual masters, that's where we would hang out. Um, and that's where we will hang out in the eschaton. Um, but the, the, the work of prayer, the process of prayer, is reaching for that, desiring it, um, and only getting glimpses by particular grace. Um, and so I, that's something that I appreciate about her framing it as a particular grace, is that it's not it it makes that direct contemplation a gift and not something it's not an un, 
it's not an achievement to unlock. Right. Um, it's not something that if I train hard enough, I'll attain to. Um, and so she kind of simultaneously says like, this is, this is the point of prayer, this direct contemplation and the stuff of prayer is desiring that and reaching for it, not attaining to it. Um, so there are two aspects to prayer that she's woven together. The, the contemplative sort of prayer, sort of pure adoration, pure awareness of God's presence, at whatever degree that's the soul is given that gift at any given point. Um, but then there's also the prayer of the directed will where I ask God for, and I learn eventually to ask God um, for what God wants. Uh, and that's something that I, I, I think she's saying needs to be learned because naturally we begin asking for what I want because that's what we know. And over time we become molded and shaped in our wills to realizing that what I want to be praying for is what God wants, not my, not what I want. So that's kind of the prayer of petition slash intercession where we're kind of requesting or imagining a, a world different than it is now and saying, you know, whether you are bringing it about God or whether I'm, well, no, we're aware that God is bringing it about one way or the other, but whether I am giving you my roadmap of what the world should look like or whether I'm consenting to what God wants to do, there's still this kind of, um, this this mode of prayer that is about moving the world into a different configuration than it is now, which I think is true of all intercession and petition. If if we're asking God for anything, it's born out of a desire to see the world differently than it is now. Whether that's God transforming it or whether I'm asking God to transform it. If I, you know, if I, somebody says, oh, will you pray for me? I'm having surgery on Wednesday. That prayer is born out of a desire to see the world shift from how it is now to some ideal other configuration that's not yet here, right? It's this anticipation of the ongoing evolution of creation in conformity with God's will. But that's very different from resting in a kind of, uh, in that contemplative adoring space because there's there's no change in there. It's timeless. It's eternal. It's beyond anything except for awe. So it's two very different kinds of prayer. As I see it. That's one of the things that I really like about Julian, by the way. The number of times she says, as I see it all the way through her writings. And there's something very um, uh, something very sweetly humble about it to me. It's just well, her perspective, you know? Right. 
the thing is, is that she had this revelation from God. Jesus came and talked to her for a day and a half. And she spent 20 years trying to figure out what it was that he said to her mm-hmm. and to make sense out of it. And that, that was a very hard job to do. And she knows that her ability, even, I mean, maybe her ability to understand it was, was tough to begin with, but then to reframe it and express it to people in actual words would be, I, well, look how long it took her to do it. And this is not a very long book. I mean, yeah. And so, you know, so yeah, so she does say, you know, as I see it, because she's telling us again and again and again, that this is the best she can do to convey what she learned and what was revealed to her. And it's anything that she, which is, which is one of the reasons why, which is, one of the big reasons why I believe everything that she says, because she is so honest about it and she's so guarded. And so framing always in this is, this is the best I can say. This is the most I can possibly give you of what was said to me. Mm-hmm. And that's why I have more than, more than anybody else. That's, that's how I feel about her. I feel a hundred percent trusting of everything that she has said to said to me, said to us in her revelation. Yeah, amen. Um the two kinds of prayer you talked about, Chris. Um <clears throat> she's I I'm just looking at the next the next paragraph. Um and trying to figure out how she sees them fitting together. And she she talks about this kind of craving. The more the soul sees of God, the more it desires him by his grace. But when we don't see him in this way, then we sense a need and a cause to pray. And I'm, I'm wondering there, like, is that like... When we're, is she talking about when we're like asking for specific things that we, we, that is how we pray when we don't have this sight of God. This, uh, we're doing this petition and intercession, asking for specific things, asking to see the world in an, in another ideal form, um, and then uh then we move towards seeing god and that that kind of spurs uh a hunger i mean it's just like this this craving um like once we see god we want more of god and when we don't see him we um we lean on asking to see him essentially, which I, I think, I think is what we're doing when we're asking thy will be done, thy kingdom come. So we're asking to see God 
and our and our specific requests are kind of manifestations or specific instances of that prayer to see God. Um, it's where when I when I pray for my neighbor who has COVID to be healed, there is that's sort of an expression of a desire to see God unmediated. And so that is that is the form of prayer maybe that that leads us into seeing God which makes us crave him even more. I'm just trying to figure out how the, how they fit those kinds of prayer fit together for her. Um, because the, the the prayer of for specific things, whenever the Lord follows us, helping our desire, and then we, by His special grace, plainly gaze upon Him, seeing no other. Then we need to follow him and he draws us into him by his love. Um, so I'm wondering if it's fair to see prayer for specific needs as sort of the way that God draws us into this pure adoration. I think no. I, I think that these, my take on it, as I see it, is that both of these, I'm well aware that the more the soul sees of God, so the prayer that comes from a partial awareness of the presence of God. And when we do not see him in this way, prayer that emerges from a sense of the lack of the presence of God. I think that both of these are different phases, different aspects of the of the contemplative life. And I think in my mind, I'm making tenuous connections that I don't have all figured out yet because, um, because the connections are being made to St. John of the Cross and his active and passive Knights of the Soul. And because those remain compelling and mysterious to me, and I don't, it, you know, it, it's a beautiful cloud, and I don't know how anything connects to it. But somehow, part of what John says in there is that there are times when we, when we feel dryness uh, in our prayer, and that makes us hungry to pray more. And there are times when we experience great consolation and great comfort in our prayer, and that makes us want to pray more. So God has constructed our souls in such a way that one way or another, we hunger for God. Whether it's because we're hungry, because we have no food on our plates, or because we've got delicious food on our plates and we want to keep gorging on it. But one way or another, you know, we have this appetite to, to pursue God. And isn't it an amazing blessing that God has given us these two uh, different kinds of hunger, these two different kinds of thirst. Um, so I, th- I think that, that that's the, the parallel made in my mind and that they're, they're both different aspects of, of contemplative um, 
prayer, contemplative prayer. So the, the prayer for specific needs is sort of the, the desire of hunger and this kind of adoration prayer is the desire of plenty. Is that where you're seeing it line up? No, I think the, the request for specific needs is a whole different thing. Like it's okay. over, over here, but that journey towards just adoration towards just the, the, the part of me that desperately wants to just rest in God's love is sometimes more aware of that than others. But I don't know that I have a, a flawless, you know, system, system, systematization. That's a terrible word. I haven't systematized it. But I think she's talking here about about different two different modes in which God draws us in. Um, because she's been saying this this whole time that if we pray, it's because God puts prayer into us, and then we just go along for that ride. Because all prayer begins in God, and God is generating the will to pray. But that manifests in two different ways, depending on whether we are just wanting more of the delights or whether we have a dim memory of the delights and we want to get back there. Um, Mm. But there's a time, I think maybe she's saying, I think she is saying that there's a time when prayer feels fairly desolate. And then we want to climb out of that hole and get back into the light. And there's a time when we're in the light and we just want, more of it that one way or it doesn't matter where we begin we're all kind of climbing the same the Mm. same mountain the mountain doesn't even exist but it feels like it does (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, you asked me again in a week what Marguerite what about the prayer for specific things what about Jen and praying praying for his neighbor who is sick, that the neighbor be healed. Most people, when they pray, I think, I bet, from talking to people, pray that way, pray for something specific. They pray that that yeah. their daughter-in-law's birth goes well, that their friend's operation goes well, that someone finds a job that they know. And where, what is that? I mean, if all prayer comes from God, that prayer has to come from God, too. Mm-hmm. And so where does that prayer go in the universe? And my theory about that is that whenever we speak to God on behalf of someone, that the love that we feel for that person and the love that we feel for God just gets added into the universe, that it just is like it becomes part of the air part of the cosmos part of whatever you want to call it and that that can can lead us so long as we're not clutched into our ego it can lead us into 
a state of contemplation or a state of spiritual prayer if you want to if you want to call it that but i think that when we pray that way that simple plain you know god bless grandma god bless, bless grandpa that kind of thing something hap- that ha- that has a a purpose that has a that's an action in the universe something she's definitely happens. talking about it here pardon me and she's definitely t- talking about it here i think that's what she's talking about i think when we see needs for which we pray that to me to me that's talking that seems to be talking about that kind of simple prayer yeah. I can see that too. I mean, certainly if we think that God is just somebody who's out there to hear our requests and grant them, that's, that's a, that's a dead end street that we would be going down. Yeah. We've confused God with Santa Claus at that point. Right. Exactly. But the minute we say, and let your will for them be done. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause it's, and that's turning it over to the yeah. real way. We, we we're making our soul pliant and obedient to God because she notes, but in no kind of, but by no kind of prayer does one make God pliant to himself right. for he is yeah. always the same love. So you could, uh, and, and if I took my time, I would I would do a better job of it. But I could imagine that you could map the stages of the development of this prayer as making requests to God for specific things because you love the things that you're praying for. Like, I love Grandma, so I'm going to pray to God for her. And then you begin to, the next step is to say, God, I'm praying for Grandma, but not my will, but your will be done because you know better. And then the next step after that is to say, whether I pray for grandma or not, I can see what God does in grandma's life. And I can see the working of God throughout the world um, and, and marvel in it and, and be grateful for it and be in awe of it's how sublime it is and be um, humbled by the majesty of what God can do. And this is where Julian picks it up. That stage is then I saw that his constant working in all manner of things, what God does throughout the universe is done so well, so wisely and so powerfully that it surpasses all our imagining that all we can suppose and comprehend we have reached this point where we can see God's work in the world and it is blowing me away. And then the final stage in this progression that I may, might write down or scrap in an hour. And then we can do nothing more than to gaze at him and rejoice with a high mighty desire to be wholly one to him, to pay attention to his prompting, rejoice in his loving and delight in his goodness. And that's the point at which the desire to see things change fades away. And there's just rest. Mm -hmm. This kind of realization that everything is already exactly as God wills it to be. And you reach this kind of purity of love. 
So there, I've mapped out my four stages that I don't know. Probably need to be three stages to be properly Julian. <laughs> that, may, that makes sense to me, though. Um, yeah, I like it. And, and that's a that's a that whole journey is a, a molding of our will and our awareness. Yeah, at no point do I love Grandma any less than I did at the right. beginning. Right. Um, but the way in which I think that Grandma and God and myself all relate to each other shifts in my perception pretty profoundly. I take myself out of the way, so there's a growth in my own humility. It's God who knows what's best for us all and not me. Um, and yeah, so there's, there's Teresa's prayer and humility and experiential self-awareness all growing. Yeah. I would love to, uh, see Julian and Teresa having dinner together and be a fly on that wall. I bet they'd get along pretty well. (laughs) I think they would. And that's, that's, it's prayer as like, seeing ourselves as we are seeing the world as it is in relation to God or coming to see like, cause that, that end state or not end state, but that, that state where we're, where we're that rest that you described that, that rest sits on um, a clear headed, vision of what's going on in the world that it like a an 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 awareness a a conscious awareness um of how everything relates under god so there's this 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 growth in what what was the was the self-knowledge is what teresa calls it experiential self-knowledge experience. yeah the experience of knowing yourself i guess or knowing yourself through experiences i don't know i'll have to reread that well, <laughs> I'm suddenly I, so Ju- julian then says like this is page 103 in the orange book um until we shall die in yearning for love and then shall we all come unto the lord knowing ourselves clearly and possessing God fully and we being eternally completely hidden in God. So is that, yeah, that knowing ourselves clearly. Seeing him truly touching him fully hearing him spiritually and delectably smelling him and sweetly tasting him. Spicy. Yeah, so I've been, uh, so I'm taking these uh, spiritual direction classes and I've been having a gentle debate with my professor because my professor is a big fan of Taylor de Chardin and kind of a cosmology first approach. And so we've been talking at great length about how amazing the universe is. And he wants us to be the starting point because the sense of awe that we find ourselves in 
after we contemplate the universe, he thinks is the starting point for everything else. Um, and I've pushed back and I've discovered helpfully, uh, I learn best from the people that I disagree with because then I have to uh, put into words why I disagree. And then that's when I learn best about what I really believe. So I've said, but even if I'm the one contemplating the majesty of the universe and the universe is a pretty amazing place, it's still me that's having the sense of awe. And it's still me that's having the sense of where I fit into it. So for me, all prayer and all spiritual direction in prayer has to begin with a certain degree of self-knowledge, my own, the mystery that is myself, and at the same time to begin to develop a sense of God. Because prayer is nothing nothing other than um, everything that is the communication of our relationship between me and God which includes prayers. You know, we've got these books of prayers, which are scripts for that relationship, but then also contemplation and adoration and recollection and all these different modes to the relationship. But then underlying it all is this um, relationship that is nothing more or less than an awareness of each other's presence in the same way that like I can write letters to my mom or talk to her on the phone, or fly out there to Boston and hold her hand. These are just different modes that wrap around the presence that we have in each other's lives, which has changed over time. Um, but in order for prayer to develop, I have to uh, grow in my understanding of who who's on the other end of the relationship, but also who I am on this end of the relationship. Um, and we're all mysteries to ourselves. Uh, so as soon as we explore the mysteries of space and the deep oceans, and uh, then, then we'll get on to understanding us. Well, but it, it's that, it's that creator creation she says the creature that is created shall see and eternally contemplate god who is the creator um and then and then she talks about how god strengthens us and moderates the showing so that seeing him doesn't destroy us um but this is like in chapter 44 she she's talking about like this perception this proper perception of who we are in relation to God, that, that God is God and we are not to use the, the AA 12 step adage. Um, and she, so she references back to the first showing the blessed Virgin and that's, and that showing is about the Virgin's humility that like, that we are God's handmaid. Um, so this this action, this action that we are performing, that that in doing it we are performing God's will and His honor everlastingly, is this acknowledgement, this returning to the awareness um, that we are created, and that that spurs a delight in our Creator. Um, so that, so the nature the nature of this self-knowledge 
is at least in part, like what she's talking about here is like this, um, this very frank facing up with our smallness and the love that that smallness proves that we are created because of love. Um, that's, that's how she's like, that's the sort of self-knowledge that we're coming into through this prayer is seeing ourselves as God's creation and seeing God as the creator and delighting him, delighting in him. That is a holy, wonderful delight in God, which is love. This is where it's it's looping back to our it's our relationship with love that it's this is this is bringing us into um, a face to face encounter with our createdness. Which I think is is the difference between that and a kind of cosmological beginning point in prayer is is the relational aspect like the 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 kind of approach to the the contemplative life that it sounds like your professor is sort of in vain with is like well the the universe is huge what are we and that's that's there in julian but that's not the point for her the point is the love like that's that's what that that smallness and greatness is about um so i i think she would gently chide us for focusing if we focus too much on the kind of cosmological scale aspect instead of saying, okay, this is what this cosmological scale question or fact proves about God and us. Yeah. The mountains and the fish and the galaxies may also love God, but what matters to me is my relationship with God because I can't be worried about the rest of it. Um, And God's relationship with you. Yeah. Yeah. Marguerite, you were about to say something. Uh, Um, Sorry. Just she was talking about in this marveling, the creature sees his God, his Lord, his creator, so high, so great, so good in reference to himself who was created, that scarcely does the creature seem anything at all by himself. And I'm at the end of uh, chapter 45 here. I mean, 44. But the clarity and purity of truth and wisdom cause him to see and recognize that he is created because of love. And in this love, God endlessly keeps him. So it's almost as if she sees in prayer, we are nothing, but yet we're everything. I mean, we're, we're both, we're, Mm -hmm. we're part of this big, this big thing, but we're also, we're also really nothing. And that's, that's, that's how I see it too. So throughout chapter 44, 
there's this, what seems to be a hint at Julian's anthropology, her concept of, of the human person. Now, there's different ways that people have divided the human being up uh, into body and soul and spirit is one way to pull them apart. Or Augustine talked about the split between memory, reason, and skill. Um, and other writers throughout the scholastic period through the kind of high middle ages talked about the three faculties being imagination and intellect and reason or imagination, intellect, and will. Um, but these kind of different aspects of our psychological selves that always seem to fit into three because the Trinity and here in chapter 44, there seems to be this triad between truth and wisdom and love. And definitely seems as though truth and wisdom are equals that become the, the, the base out of which love grows. So it doesn't seem as though the three of them are equals. Love proceeds from truth and wisdom. But do you think that Julian is saying that that somehow within us, there's something that deals with truth and something that deals with wisdom and something that deals with love that make up our personality. Is this like her version of like memory, reason and will or something? My gut says no, because she's not elsewhere. Very scholastic. Like, She's clearly like formed in a high medieval kind of milieu where scholasticism was very alive, but um, I don't know that we should necessarily see these as parts of us. Well, except maybe because she says... Okay, so God is eternal supreme truth, eternal supreme wisdom, eternal supreme love uncreated. And man's soul is a created thing in God, which has the same divine qualities except created. Yeah. And then the soul does what it was made for, perceives God. So it's like we've got one antenna designed to look for the truth. Mm-hmm. And it contemplates God. So there's another antenna designed to look for the wisdom and it loves God, an antenna that's tuned to that love frequency. So it's like these three different channels. That Maybe you're right. But I don't think it's possible to necessarily map it onto something like the intellect versus the emotions or something like that. I think there's, no. um, I think it's more mystical than that. <laughs> but I have wondered since I first read this, if to what degree she thinks that this is like a description of, of the human psychology or something like that. Yeah. That's an intriguing idea. I think you might be right. And then it's, it's all pointing towards this love. I think that's, yeah, that's what flows out of this truth and wisdom. Marguerite, do you have have wisdom or truth to impart on this part? Not at this point, thank you. 
I mean, I think she's. She, I, th- I think this hints at the idea that that the goal is to love, but you need, in order for love to be genuine, you have to have some uh, mental, some experiential concept of what it is or who it is you're loving. You you can't just love in an unattached way. You can't like love needs an object. We could probably debate that, but you know, all the things that if, if I say I love stuff and in the English language, I can say that I love lots of things because unlike other languages, we don't have a whole lot of words for love. Um, so I can say I love lots of stuff, but there's always something like on the other end of that verb you know i love dogs i love autumn i love my wife i love god i love marmite um whatever it is um so like so i I, in order for me to love i have to have some concept that's on the other end of that that hopefully is true um i mean i might love something with an incorrect concept you know um which any of us who has ever been in a in a romantic relationship that's gone sideways we all have that moment somewhere towards the end of the relationship where it's like you are not the person that i thought you were um and so to some extent that that love was genuine but it was connected to an incorrect and untrue or maybe unwise assessment of who was on the other end of that love. So it's, the, it's some intellectual, some life experience, um, and then some just consent of the will. We have to at some point say, I, I choose to participate in this relationship with God. Based on a, based on an awareness and knowledge. That's where we go back, like knowing ourselves clearly. Then we show, then shall we all come unto the Lord, knowing ourselves clearly, possessing God fully, and we being eternally completely hidden in God, seeing him truly, touching him fully, hearing him spiritually, delectably smelling him, sweetly tasting him. That is the basis of the love. This is like her version is like her commentary on Augustine's uh, famous book one, chapter 10 and his confessions where he talks about how our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Because he says like our hearts are, are, we are made to love you Lord. And we look for you everywhere else. And we try and fill that, that void in all kinds of other ways, but it's, uh, it's inevitable. Like eventually we're going to get drawn to you because the, the pieces fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. Which makes me wonder, did Julian have access to Augustine? Don't know. And it, yeah. One, this is 
one other thing in favor of your interpretation of this as her kind of anthropology. So this chapter 44 sort of rounds off her treatise on prayer. And she then launches into a conversation about human nature. Um, so this might be, this might be her grounding her conversation in human nature in this conversation about love and prayer. Yeah. So it's like a transition, her segue from yeah. prayer to the ones, the human ones who are doing the praying. Yeah. So that probably means that it's a, a pretty good time to wrap up this episode because otherwise we'll just get bogged down in chapter 45 and that's for next time. Sounds good. Sounds good. Mercury, do you have any final thoughts on 43 or 44? Um, I don't okay. actually. Sorry. Sorry. Right. Dan, wrap it up. Give us give us something to to go home with. Just a little blurb. We can do nothing more than to gaze at God and rejoice with a high, mighty desire to be wholly one to him and to pay attention to his prompting and rejoice in his loving and delight in his goodness. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the revelations of divine love, the order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.